This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good afternoon. You're listening to Beyond Zero Emissions. My name is Jane. Thanks very much to Peter for the previous show. That was Doing Time. And uh, it's a beautiful day in Melbourne. What can I say? Tonight we have three separate pieces brought to you from Vivian. The first is uh, features the barrister Andrew Laird, who talks about closing down a coal mine in Anglesey. Anglesey, for those of you perhaps not in Victoria, is on the southwest of Melbourne. Uh, it's in the Surf Coast Shire, and whoever thought there was a coal mine there? But uh, there was a successful campaign. It has now been closed down. Also, there's a little bit a little bit of a pep talk about why Twitter works. Uh, in that first piece. Then we'll hear from the Green, Federal Greens member Adam Bant, uh, the Victorian Greens member Alan Sandal, and John Grimes from the Australian Solar Council. Uh, they're, they're, they're talking about the campaign to close down the Hazelwood power station, which is gaining momentum. They want your support. Again, for those who may not know, uh, the Hazelwood Power Station is a notorious brown coal-fuelled power station in the Latrobe Valley, which is in Gippsland. Lastly, courtesy of the ABC The Drum, we get a dose of salt from the Right Honourable Lord John Deben. Uh, Lord John Deben is in the House of Lords. He's a Conservative, but he gets it, gets it up Australia regarding our uh, environmental record. He is on the drum telling two journalists how Australia is falling behind the world pack and must rejoin the company of ethical nations who are nimbly and intelligently getting into climate action. But first up, Vivian with the barrister Andrew Laird. Andrew Laird is with us tonight. He's a climate campaigner with some runs on the board and we're going to talk to him about the successful campaign to shut down a coal mine at Anglesey in Victoria. How are you, Andrew? Very well, thank you, Vivian. Look, I'd like you to tell tell us a bit about yourself, say who you are and all that, and why coal, climate and clean air have got you moving. Okay, I'm a a Melbourne-based barrister in my early 50s who has a long-term connection to the uh, seaside township of Anglesey on the iconic Great Ocean Road. And uh, as listeners may or or may not be aware, uh, there was until recently an active brown coal mine and power plant down there that was set up back in the 60s under the then Balti government to provide 
uh, about 40% of the power to the former Alcoa, Point Henry, aluminium smelter in Geelong. And uh, back in 2011, uh, the lease for that facility was extended for another 50 years, which uh, horrified many in the community because uh, we had been expecting that uh, it may close and certainly wouldn't continue to operate for another 50 years. But to compound matters, in February of 2014, uh, Alcoa announced that it was going to close its Point Henry smelter, which was the sole reason for Anglesey's existence, and attempt to sell the Anglesey mine and plant rather than shut it down. And that caused a great deal of angst in the community because the social licence for the facility, which was highly polluting, uh, really was linked to the Point Henry smelter in Geelong and the large-scale employment that that uh, mm. generated. And the idea that it could be decoupled and we might be stuck with mm. this uh, plant for another 50 years horrified people. And that was the time that I personally got involved and... Uh, joined an existing group down there that was very much focused on the pollution issues. Mm. Well, we heard on a um, radio program that I know you listen to called Guarding Eden that it's good to talk about success. So tell us um, the story of Anglesey. I know listeners might remember Dr. Meryn Redenbach was on the show. She talked a few years ago about the childhood asthma. There was a primary school nearby. And, yes. and definitely that social licence wasn't there and people were very anguished about it. But that's a long time ago. So this is a long you know, arduous kind of trip that people, campaigners do. And I want the listeners to understand, to get the success, what, what you've gone through. Yes. Well, my, my personal involvement, as I uh, mentioned, began in February 2014 as, as part of the Surf Coast Air Action Group. But the group had been batting on for, for some years before that. And Meryn Redenbach, who uh, uh, does excellent work generally and uh, particularly through Doctors for the Environment Australia, had assisted the local community and there were uh, at least a couple of medicos also in the Surf Coast Air Action Group mm. to, to get on top of the uh, uh, pollution issue. And after Alcoa uh, decided that it was going to try to sell uh, the facility as a going concern, one of the key uh, things that Surf Coast Air Action sought to do was to educate both the public purchases and indeed government because there's a fair bit of ignorance within government even on air pollution issues yeah. about just how dangerous and inappropriately located this facility was and the campaign as you've mentioned went on over uh, a number of years but I'm very happy to report that it was ultimately successful in May of this year yeah. when Alcoa uh, eventually announced to its credit that it was going to cease uh, trying to sell the facility it hadn't been able to uh, locate any uh, willing purchaser and yeah. we, we certainly think that we uh, played a significant role uh, in educating them oh. about the undesirability of uh, yeah, continuing it. That's what I want to know. Like You got, got through to the potential buyers. You got through to some, a, a very specific public there. Um, I think that's with the divestment movement similarly. You're getting through to banks, you know, don't invest in Adani and that sort of thing. But... Ab I noticed, Absolutely. Yeah, I noticed that you, um, when you were listening to our Guarding Eden, now just for, to tell listeners, um, 
Andrew Laird is our speaker tonight, and he tweeted during our program because he knew it was going to be on. And I was very grateful to you for telling me that because you were telling people to listen to it, and I wish more people would do that. But I don't do Twitter myself, and I'd like you to tell the audience why tweeting and following people on Twitter sort of works, you know, when you're trying to get a campaign moving. Certainly. Well, Twitter is an amazing platform, and we don't have time to go into the detail tonight, but... uh, it enables you uh, to communicate very directly with politicians, banks, uh, obviously anybody who is on Twitter, and you do so in within the confines of a relatively short amount of words. You've got 140 characters. Mm. You, you have to keep your message, therefore, very pithy. Uh, you can also attach to a, a, a tweet relevant news stories for example the other night i was able to uh, attach the link to your excellent interview of deb hart and mm. the various uh, subjects of guarding eden and uh it, it's a platform that uh in terms of its impact on politics in australia is probably second to none and uh, i've certainly found i've gone from being a complete social media novice before i became involved in the anglesey campaign to using it extensively because I can see just how valuable it is uh, to any form of uh, political campaigning. But how do you get through to specific people? Say you wanted to get through to those people who are considering buying that yes. uh, mine or, or to some politicians from that area to let them know there was some heat on. How okay. do you get through to them? Uh, well, for starters, uh, major electricity companies in Australia, both producers and retailers, if they're not all on Twitter, the vast majority of them are. So we were able to engage with your AGLs, Energy Australia's, Origins, uh, Alintas, and so on and so forth. And really by uh, doggedly posing Socratic questions <laughs> via Twitter about their interests or otherwise, really puts them in a position ultimately where Uh, because these tweets are being seen by a very large number of people, they really do need to uh, be frank uh, about their intentions or if they choose not to be, that in itself isn't a good look. So we we had a lot of success in terms of companies uh, specifically ruling themselves out as potential purchasers via Twitter and that caused uh, a a lot of excitement uh, both in the Twitter sphere and certainly in, in Anglesey, because we were able to give them a, a pat on the back and that created a, a sense of momentum. That's what I want. I want to know that, and I want listeners to know that, because people, a lot of people say to me, oh, you know, none of this sort of works, writing a letter to the editor or writing to your Member of Parliament, least of all, you know, that you just get a generic letter back and it doesn't work. But yeah. I think this is more pointed and more embarrassing, perhaps. Absolutely. I I do a lot of letter writing as well, but I I think you've hit on a very important point that if you send a letter or an email, uh, unless you published it in some way, it's effectively private and they can choose to ignore it. And if you do get a response, it will often be so bland as to be effectively meaningless. With with a tweet, it's out there uh, in the public domain and everybody can see it. And a very good recent example uh, is the uh, Adani uh, mine up in Queensland, or the proposed Adani mine, I should say, uh, where you have now had, in relatively uh, short order, 
Commonwealth Bank and NAB mm. ruling themselves out mm. as potential funders. Mm. There's an enormous amount of activity on Twitter uh, about that, uh, not, not just uh, obvious uh, advocates such as market forces, but, but generally, and I did a bit of tweeting about that issue myself today, I, I can see uh, there is an enormous amount of pressure that is now being brought to bear on the remaining two of the big four ANZ and Westpac to state what their intentions are and I think if you follow that and if any listeners who are perhaps dubious about the um, benefits of Twitter follow that you'll see I, I would suggest fairly quickly just how effective Twitter is because whilst uh, I'm not uh, inside their boardrooms for obvious reasons I, I, I would imagine that there'd be a great deal of discomfort about the uh, public scrutiny that is now being applied to their intentions. Yeah. I think it's very urgent that the legal minds put themselves into this uh, sphere because uh, we've got a lot of threats to, to climate action. For example, George Brandis is apparently considering to change the law so that local people would have standing, but, but no one else would have standing before the courts so that a person outside the Barrier Reef or the Shenhua mine in the Liverpool Palins area outside that, like Melbourne activists or Sydney people, wouldn't be able to... I, I think that is one of the most disturbing and uh, egregious attacks on the democratic process that I can recall. I, I find it, I must say, Vivian, absolutely ludicrous for it to be suggested that simply because a person isn't res or may be resident in Melbourne or Sydney... Mm that they have no legitimate interest in protecting something as iconic as the Great Barrier Reef mm. or, or as important as the Liverpool Plains food bowl. Mm. And it, it's a very, very sinister development. Mm. It's something that I think needs to be opposed extremely strongly. Well, are there campaigners going against that? Because, I mean, it's not just the Liverpool Plains or the Barrier Reef, it's the biosphere. You know, it's this climate impact that we could say, look, I could say I'm doing this um, campaigning in Melbourne on behalf of the people in the Philippines who've just had the typhoon that swept half of them away. Absolutely. And if, if one accepts uh, the, the balance of respectable scientific opinion, we're obviously in a position where we need to be doing things urgently and the consequences of not doing so are potentially so dire that erring on the side of caution is obviously the prudent thing to do. And mm. regrettably, when you look at the, the way politics in this country, uh, certainly at federal level and, and to, to some extent also at state level, the way that it's working, uh, it, it does become very, very important, I think, to be able to have recourse to the courts. Uh, we're very fortunate in this country that we have a, a fiercely independent and highly competent judiciary which is prepared to hold the government like any other uh, litigant to the law and, and there's absolutely no reason why the government ought be above the law mm. and, and were that to occur it would be uh, uh, just devastating for our democracy. So these sorts of attacks on standing and, and the associated uh, rhetoric. I, I, 
I, I don't think I've heard uh, an environmentalist oh, in recent times. and yes. like we're being compared to terrorists. Terrorists. You? Or, or, or you, you don't seem to hear the word green mentioned without extreme being tacked no. in front. And no. I, I'm, I'm someone who is a barrister from a fairly conservative profession in my early 50s. I don't in any way, shape or form consider myself to be extreme. In fact, I'm quite conservative on... Mm a number of issues, but I'm extremely concerned about issues of uh, environment, public health and the like, and the idea that we could be constrained and not able to challenge decisions where the government hasn't obeyed its own laws well, is quite the... extraordinary. All right. Well, thank you very much, Andrew, for telling us all of that, and the short lesson on Twitter was very nice in the middle of the broadcast. So we've been talking to Andrew Laird. He's a barrister, and um, he was reporting on the successful campaign to close down the coal mine at Anglesey and a little bit about the recent uh, threat to citizens' rights to protest about projects that are threatening to the whole of the land or the atmosphere or even the biosphere. So thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Vivian. If you're not absolutely furious, you're really not paying enough attention. The world's a shambles. So come along and join us in being active, and together we can make this world a more ethical place to live. People out there in the radio world, show some love to 3CR. You know, and if you're listening and enjoying the programs here, man, great radio station. It is how how it was built by community and the community ownership, and that's a powerful thing to have within community. So show some love, show some support, and please subscribe. From the north to the south to the east to the west, let the bullet take you home. Island style represent your soul to the flow. Love your set represent. Raise your pride to the sky. Love it like it's the best. My power bring it back home. Love. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show and next up we're hearing a a seminar called The End of Carbon featuring two Greens MPs, Adam Bant and Alan Sandal and also John Grimes, the CEO from the Australian Solar Council. End of Carbon seminar was at Melbourne University so Beyond Zero Emissions radio just had to be there. But don't hold your breath, listeners. Carbon is not going to go without an almighty people's push. And in fact, this seminar was basically focusing on Hazelwood. And we will hear from Adam Band, who is the Greens MP in our federal parliament, John Grimes, head of the Solar Council, and Ellen Sandor, who represents Melbourne in the Victorian government. So the focus is on closing Hazelwood and gearing up for an almighty people's push in September. I was surprised, really, that we have to make this effort because you'd think that the Hazelwood fire would have put that company out of business, just the reparations, the maintenance and the rehabilitation would be so costly. You'd think they would be limping away from that. You'd think maybe the shaming from the rest of the world, as this coal from Hazelwood is one of the highest polluting in the world. No, we'll have to fight. So the best thing is to be informed I'd like you to listen to Adam Bant first, then 
Paul Grimes, who's talking from the thing that will take its place, the uh, solar revolution that will take the place of this dirty energy, and then Ellen Sandal about tactics. If you'd like to get involved, please look up the Greens website because they are really trying to mobilise people to people power to get the government to take this on. We have got a Labour Party government who John Ruby previously said he would shut, close down Hazelwood. So it's sort of on their horizon, but maybe they need a push. Let's go. Um, why have we picked Hazelwood? What is it about Hazelwood in particular that is crying out for its replace its closure and its replacement with renewables? Well, it produces 16 million tonnes of pollution every year. Uh, as I said, it's the dirtiest power station in Australia. There's, we estimate, if you want to put a dollar figure on it, $917 million every year in unseen costs to health and the environment. It's one of the few power stations that has been licensed to take native forests and burn them and have that counted as renewable energy, um, just in case for whatever reason the coal market falls over. Uh, Hazelwood is a station that produces 1,600 megawatts of power. There's equivalent of five excess Hazelwoods in the national grid at the moment. So there's actually more energy being produced across the country than uh, is, uh, uh, is currently required or capable of being produced than is currently required. It's something that we believe is important, knowing how short a time that we've got to stop burning fossil fuels and to make sure that we don't dig up any more of them and burn them and to switch over to renewables. This is our job. This is our job in Parliament at the moment to lead the charge for change. Uh, we went down to the Latrobe Valley and spent a day down there talking to locals, um, hearing from them uh, particularly about the effect of the Hazelwood Mine Fire, where the coal mine, as you know, um, caught fire and the residents were kept in the dark, as we're finding out this week. We're finding that you know, draft reports about potential... Um, increased risk of death were being uh, hidden from them but um, they felt certainly that they didn't know what was going on and there wasn't a plan to deal with the mine fire but more than that our view very strongly is that if we are going to argue for a change in our energy system it can't be done in the way that happened to the Latrobe Valley under Kennett with privatisation where leave everything to the market and don't worry about what it means for people. Um, Our approach puts people first and that includes the people who work at Hazelwood And so any campaign has to be about um, creating sustainable jobs for the people in the region as well. And so we went and had discussions with them about what that might look like and got some really good ideas about vision for the region, but also, I think, came away with a pretty clear understanding from people there that they know something needs to change, that change is in the wind, and they just don't want to be left behind and people want to be looked after. And I think that is um, absolutely a fair enough ask. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show at 3CR. Tonight we're talking about the end of Hazelwood Power Station. We've just heard from Adam Bant, and now we'll listen to John Grimes from the Australian Solar Council. Ladies and gentlemen, when you're in the trenches and you're fighting against the vested interests of coal, sometimes it's easy to lose sight of the big picture. So what I want to do tonight is perhaps just take the discussion up a level and give you a bird's-eye view of what's happening particularly in relation to renewable energy, both in Australia and around the world. Friends, the world is at a tipping point. We're at the crest of a great wave. This is the transformation of our energy system, our static electricity system globally. For the first time, 
technology is literally putting power into the hands of the people. From a dumb one-way grid built in the 1950s to uh, the smart grid of the future. And the smart grid of the future will um, have a lot of sensors on it, uh, it will have load controls, it will be uh, very smart and it will allow you to control electricity to a much greater extent than we have today. And the future starts to emerge. And, and when we look at it, one thing I can tell you for sure is solar one. The solar transformation is now unstoppable. So the vested interests can frustrate it, they can delay it, but they can't stop it. Solar PV today can produce electricity at around 6 to 10 cents per kilowatt hour if you look over a 25-year period. Quite extraordinary. That is less than the infrastructure costs to deliver electricity to your home, and that's without having to pay for the electricity from a Hazelwood or somewhere else in the first place. So we're getting to that really interesting economic sweet spot. We make solar where we use it. The sun is everywhere. Uh, that's why the people of Australia have collectively built a four gigawatt people's power plant. It's the equivalent to, to four really big coal-fired power stations. The majority of that was privately funded with no risk to government. Now, uh, one of the interesting things about this take-up of solar is it's created the space and changed the economic order so that we are starting to see coal-fired power stations exit the market in South Australia and Victoria uh, and elsewhere. And there will be growing pressure on coal-fired generators who will not be facing the economic realities of not being competitive in that space. That's not the problem for Hazelwood, as we've just heard, so we need to attack that in a different way. But an interesting proposition, uh, nevertheless. Uh, by 2050, solar and wind will dominate the global energy sector. It's a simple matter of economics. And we don't have to wait until 2050 to see the results. Over the next 10 years, the people of Australia will build the equivalent of the renewable energy snowy hydro scheme. A massive transformation of the energy sector that will lead us to abundant, cheap and best of all, a clean energy future. In 2014, over $300 billion scoured the globe looking for a home to invest in renewable energy projects. And in Australia, we had the not open for business sign out, so none of it came here. But in the long term, Australia does have a fantastic comparative advantage. We talk about the great things that have happened in Germany, in solar. Well, Germany has the same solar resource as Alaska. Now, Australia has the best solar resource for a continent anywhere in the world, about four times per square metre of the energy of somewhere like Germany. So that, that is a, that's a baked-in advantage that we will capitalise on uh, in the future. We also have some of the, the best solar brains in Australia. You know, it's not overreach to say a lot of the solar on your rooftop today, solar hot water, solar PB, was invented right here in Australia. We have a public who are hungry for control. They're sick of being the bunnies at the end of the line that opened their power bill. They didn't have a voice in the debate about how we got here. They didn't 
They didn't, you know, advocate for an extra $40 billion worth of infrastructure spending, but their power bills have doubled. So it's palpable. You know, the, the Australian public is looking for more control, and solar and renewables and smart energy systems give them that control. So um, once in a while, I think you should just pause, smile, and see Prime Minister Tony Abbott for what he is. A King Canute in budgie smugglers, on the shore, commanding the tide not to come in. His work is futile. He is deluded. And for Abbott, we don't have to wait for history to condemn him. Mainstream Australia already has. So here are some more observations. Information technology and energy are rapidly merging. At the core of the house and the business of the future will be a computer that runs your energy network. And you'll program it to say, I want the cheapest electricity, or I want the electricity with the lowest emissions. And the system will take care of the rest. Actually, it'll be set and forget. It'll be a smart system. Not only will it link your solar PV, um, some backup power from the grid, um, batteries, um, solar hot water, uh, but it will also actively control the loads inside your house and it will do it without you having to lift a finger. It will also predict. So it knows today's Friday, in two days' time it's Sunday. My energy use in two days' time is going to be different from today, so I need to be storing some extra power aside. Um, I need to be looking at what the solar resource available is going to be in two days' time. So these are smart systems. They're emerging very quickly, and they will transform our energy system. 100% renewables is feasible and affordable using today's technologies. <coughs> there is no technology barrier to the take-up of 100% renewables. The, the transformation would stimulate massive economic benefits, create huge job opportunities, and lock in tomorrow's electricity prices today. Next. Economic growth and electricity have been decoupled. Since 2009, uh, energy use has dropped by around 8%. In the same time, economic growth has increased by 16%. Coal is good for humanity. Oh, hang on, that's not right. Solar is good for humanity. The unelectrified developing world is not going to install the dumb one-directional grid of the 1950s. It's just too expensive. They're leapfrogging directly into distributed solar and wind power, and they're reaping the rewards. A small, pollution-free solar panel connected to an LED light, connected to, uh, a, a, to charge a mobile, to run a radio, to power a computer, are transforming lives in the developing world. Next. Abbott has got to go. It's as simple as that. Uh, again, the Greens get it. In the federal parliament, you don't negotiate with terrorists. As Abbott has smashed his election promise to keep the existing renewable energy target, smashed his promise for a million additional solar roofs, tried to abolish ARENA and then stripped it of $750 million of funding tried to abolish the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and then stop it from investing in wind and solar projects. But you know what? 
Australians have seen into the soul of our Prime Minister. And what did they see? Friends, it's covered in coal dust. (laughs) For the solar industry, this is our work choices moment. That's why we stand side by side with the Greens. The public are massively on your side. So far, the solar industry has spent over a million dollars to save solar. In the WA Senate by-election, we took out full-page advertisements. We urged people to vote for the Greens and against the Liberal Party. And we were really pleased when Scott Ludlam was returned to the Senate. We've worked hard with this Parliament to build a coalition from Labor and the Greens and the Palmer United Party, Ricky Muir, Glenn Lazarus, all together to stop that horrendous legislation on a whole range of things, but particularly on renewable energy, from getting through the Senate. Then we ran a strong campaign in Queensland. We've run a marginal seats campaign in Petrie, in Eden Monaro, in Barton, in Deakin, in Hindmarsh, in Herbert, around the country. We've only just begun. We have an active program underway today in in the Canning by-election. And polling released today shows that people, the voters of Canning, put renewable energy policy as more important than national security policy. Well, we won't tell them. Renewable energy policy, environment policy, is national security policy. With any luck, the swing against Abbott will be sufficient to give him the boot. But whatever happens, we won't stop. I'd like to commend the work of Greg Barber and Ellen Sandell for holding the Victorian government accountable when it comes to renewable policy. When it comes to the federal election, our advice to you all is this. Go and sell the benefits of renewable energy. Sell a positive vision for our country, a vision that the people of Australia buy into very easily. Go strong on economics, on job creation, on big infrastructure spending and projects particularly in rural and regional Australia. Talk about attracting global investment into projects here in Australia. Talk about more competition and more control for consumers. Friends, together we will put the Abbott government to the sword. We will create jobs. We will transform our economy. We will realise Australia's true solar potential. And together, with the Greens, we will lead Australia the clean energy future it deserves. Thanks to John Grimes from the Australian Solar Council. He's quite a leader in this field and it's great to hear these rousing words. Now we'll go on to hear Ellen Sandor. She wants to tell us about Hazelwood more specifically, how it's dangerous as well as dirty and the cheapness is what is holding up the stoppage and uh, how we can get around that. Thanks so much, John. I feel all inspired now. It's wonderful. So I've just come from a week in Parliament and usually when I give up, get up to give a speech now I brace myself for the, the insults and the uh, yelling that's going to come so please be gentle. Um, we've heard tonight uh, two very good cases for why we need to replace Hazelwood. Uh, first we heard that it's really dirty and it is the dirtiest in the country. In fact it's the third dirtiest in the entire world which is really saying something. People say that India and China have dirty coal, actually our coal is worse. Um, We've heard that we have oversupply and so in fact 
we could turn off Hazelwood tomorrow if we wanted and it wouldn't affect our energy supply issues. What we didn't hear too much about, but something to add to the case for closing Hazelwood, is that it is very dangerous. Uh, and, and we heard a little bit about how it may be on its last legs and something that I'm quite worried about is that uh, Hazelwood and GDF Sewers, the parent company of Hazelwood, is running the plant into the ground and if there's another disaster, uh, they're not investing in maintenance and so there could be a, a very dangerous situation happening at Hazelwood any day now. And I'm not sure how many of you remember back to 2014 when the mine caught on fire and it was horrendous. And many of you may not remember because it was really swept under the rug. And I've been down to the Latrobe Valley three times in the last six months and heard incredible stories of people who survived that mine fire and it really was a disaster zone. It was just walls of flame. It was people literally couldn't breathe and we're seeing the inquiry now showing that there was a huge spike in deaths because of that and the government did very little for the Latrobe Valley community. So I think the fact that it's dirty, the fact that it's dangerous, the fact that we don't need it anymore are some pretty good cases for why the government needs to lead and replace Hazelwood. But what we have heard is that we are in a difficult situation because it's cheap. And many of you will have heard the, the good news stories over the last few months of coal plants closing down around the world. Uh, a fifth of the coal plants in the US have closed down due to policies such as the emissions standards that Obama introduced. And here, right here in Australia, we've had several plants shut down. We had Anglesey shut down, partly due to a very strong community campaign, and also two plants in Port Augusta. Um, but the, problem, the problems that they had in Anglesey and Port Augusta were a little bit different to what we face in Hazelwood. And we saw the economics of those plants in the graph showed that they were a lot more expensive to run than Hazelwood. Uh, they shut down partly due to community campaigns but partly due to the coal market. And the problem was they shut down and there was no plan for the workers and there was no plan for the community. The governments didn't see the writing on the wall, which they should have, and now we have people stranded, communities and workers stranded. We don't want to see that happen here with Hazelwood. But Hazelwood is much cheaper than those plants, so we cannot simply just leave it to the market and sit back and think that Hazelwood is going to shut on its own. And that's why Adam and I have chosen Hazelwood as a target of our campaign this year, because it is one that needs government intervention. It's a special case being so dirty and so dangerous, but it's also a special case in being so cheap, which is why the government... In this case, we believe the state government needs to intervene because sure as hell not going to get a carbon price under Tony Abbott, especially not one that's big enough to shut Hazelwood. The reason we need government action is, th is though not just due to the fact that the market won't shut it on its own. That is a huge reason why we need government intervention. But the other side of the coin is that we need government intervention to support people. Uh, what many people may not know and what I didn't know before I got into uh, energy politics is that Hazelwood and the Latrobe Valley was essentially a planned community. <laughs> the government came in, decided that we needed cheap energy in Victoria and essentially built a whole bunch of communities. Uh, and the State Electricity Commission at the time provided support and work for these communities. Uh, but when privatisation hit, a lot of the, the work left the valley, and the valley really never recovered. Uh, the valley's been given a really 
short shrift. It is. Um, it hasn't been supported. It has. It wasn't supported under privatisation, and, and now we see with the mine fire, people of Latrobe Valley have been left behind, and we don't want that to happen again. And so, if there is a disaster at Hazelwood, and it has to turn off for some particular reason. Um, what might happen is those workers, the hundreds of workers who work at Hazelwood, are simply left to their own devices and essentially thrown out in the street. And that's absolutely what should not happen to these people who've been providing us electricity for so many years. And so that's another reason why we need government intervention, not just to replace Hazelwood, but also to look at what other industries could go down to the Latrobe Valley and how the community can be involved in a proper just transition plan. So I've talked a lot about why the government, and particularly the state government, needs to intervene. And the good thing is that we know that it's absolutely possible. And I know this because I used to work in the Premier's department. About eight years ago, I worked for Premier John Brumby in the Climate Change Office. And some of you may have heard me tell this story before, but it was a real pivotal point for me about understanding how governments make decisions. Uh, I was working on a policy that John Brumby had decided to do, which was to put solar panels on every Victorian school. He got very excited about this policy and decided he was going to go gangbusters and put solar panels everywhere. And it was my job to look at how much it would cost and how you would integrate it with the curriculum and all these logistical issues. Uh, and I'd worked on it for about six months when uh, a particular day came round that was the first day of school in the middle of summer, and it was just boiling hot, it was 37 degrees or something, and as I was getting ready for work I was listening to talk back radio and heard some parents call up and say, oh it's ridiculous that our kids have to go to school when it's so hot, and isn't this terrible? Uh, I rode my bike into Spring Street and I very clearly remember walking down the corridor of my office, sweating in my riding clothes, uh, and seeing a blue piece of paper on the table which was a note from the Premier that essentially said Ellen, scrap the solar panels idea. How much would it cost to put air conditioners in every Victorian school instead? And really in that moment, I learnt a very important lesson for a young bureaucrat on how change happens and the power of parents calling up talkback radio uh, and the power of a political threat to a leader was so much more powerful than his desire to put solar panels on every Victorian school and that whole program was scuttled and we still don't have... Somebody, one of a green supporter the other day sent me an email saying, Ellen, I've got this great idea for a campaign for you. You should try and put solar panels in every Victorian school. And I thought, oh, you clearly haven't been to one of my speeches. Um, so I know that this type of pressure works on politicians. Uh, indeed, Adam and I are politicians, and there's nothing that politician hates more than the thought of losing their seat. And we are in a really lucky position living in central Melbourne. Back in 2010, the Labor government made a commitment to replace Hazelwood. That's a pretty amazing thing for them to have done. They came out publicly and the Premier John Bromby said, you either believe in shutting Hazelwood or you don't, and I do. Now the Labor Party are back in government. They've been in government for nine months and they seem to have conveniently forgotten about this promise that they made in 2010. And it's our job as people who live in marginal seats in the inner city to remind them of this promise. We know it can be done because they have promised it before. We know now there is more oversupply than ever and the mine is more dangerous than ever. So it's a really good situation that we're in to convince them to replace Hazelwood. 
So that uh, last piece was a seminar called The End of Carbon with Adam Bant, Alan Sandal and uh, f- uh, from the Greens Party and uh, speaking with John Grimes, the head of the Australian Solar Council in the middle. Next up is Lord John Deben, uh, courtesy of The Drum from the ABC. Uh, and Lord Deben is putting it up Australia for our woeful climate action to date. Australia is promising something much less than the United States, wildly less than any European country, less than Mexico, less than Brazil, less than China. And it's a pretty sad thing. I'm a great Australian fan, and I'm really sad that she should be right at the back of the pack and also pretending she was ahead. It's very, it's very sad. Uh, you, you say less than, than China. The way that's been characterised here is that China is going to continue to, to increase emissions. They're going to not peak until around 20. 30, which suggests that, well, what's the point in Australia doing anything more aggressive when China is going to keep putting out carbon pollution like that? Well, look, we've shoved most of our manufacturing to China, and it's not surprising that her pollution has increased. But she now does have a peak date. She's doing more to invest in uh, non-fossil fuels than any other country in the world. We expect that she will actually peak much earlier than she says. She certainly believes in climate change, and uh, what she's doing is remarkable, given where she started from. And the sadness is that many... Many other countries are doing very well indeed, working really hard at it, and Australia is going to go to the Paris talks with one of the least uh, ambitious targets. And yet you, this great country, is more vulnerable than many countries as we're seeing now with the really serious threats um, of uh, peaking uh, 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 heat. What about the the situation in the United Kingdom, I suppose, uh, broadly comparable to Australia in terms of our position in in, in the world, our our point of industrialisation, probably more of a relevant comparison to the UK than it is perhaps to to China? What are the targets there? Well, we're at 40 when you're at 25. That's the fact. We are going to cut our emissions by 80% by the year 2050. We have a programme to do that, which is statutory. In other words, it's It's legally binding. The Climate Change Committee is a legally binding committee. We've already put forward uh, and have had accepted all the programme towards that up to uh, 2027. I'm now working with my committee on 2027 to 2032. The the government is entirely supportive, as is the opposition. And the government is spending, over the period up to 2020, is spending seven. 7.6 billion pounds on uh, ensuring that we are in line to decarbonize the whole of our electricity system. So we are doing uh, very, very much more than Australia, as indeed is the whole of the rest of the European Union, as is Switzerland and Norway, as is Mexico. Even the proposals that look as if they're coming from South Africa are better than those which are being proposed by, by Australia. It's very sad. You mentioned, John, the the bipartisan consensus around this issue, obviously a a very big difference to what we've seen in Australia in the last five years or so when that bipartisan approach broke down. Uh, From what you understand of the Australian situation, from conversations that you've had, do you see a, a return to a consensus position with a change of Prime Minister? 
Well, there ought to be. I mean, conservatives around the world are, of course, uh, very much in the lead of battling against climate change. I mean, David Cameron in Britain, Angela Merkel uh, in Germany, two of the major leaders leading parties not dissimilar in attitudes to the uh, coalition. They are very clearly fighting this battle. And Malcolm Turnbull is a, is a person whom I respect, I know, uh, and hope very much that he'll be able to help his party to accept the science. The science is now absolute. I mean, nobody really in the world disagrees with the fact that climate change is happening, that human beings are causing it. And if we don't work together to do something about it, then frankly, we are going to find ourselves in a really serious position, not just our future, not just children and grandchildren, but ourselves, as we've seen, I mean, just today, um, a friend of mine has been evacuated from South Carolina, where he was at there with his, uh, with his daughter who went to college there, evacuated by the Red Cross because of the disastrous floods. There's been a drought for seven years in uh, California. Uh, the floods, the water coming down now is absolutely enormous. The extreme of weather, which you are experiencing here in Australia, are going to get worse and worse. All right, let's bring in some questions and comments from the panels. David. Uh, John, I think it's hard to disagree with your assessment that, that Australia is at the back of the pack in terms of its aspiration around emissions reduction. Can you talk a little bit about the other end of the scale? What are the countries that are, that are adopting best practice? What are the types of policy approaches that are being embraced that Australia could look to if it were to improve its uh, targets around emission reduction? Well, first of all, of course, encouraging uh, all sorts of uh, non-fossil fuel uh, generation. And the attack on wind power and solar power, which we've had here, is rather sad because you've got wonderful opportunities for solar power and a good deal of opportunities, too, for wind power. So that's the first part of it. The second part of it is energy efficiency. There's a huge amount we can do. We don't, we don't want to be... Uh, I mean, I'm not a Puritan. I'm a Catholic. I'm in favour of people enjoying themselves. I don't want a, a world in which we are miserable. All we can do, if, if we were sensible about energy efficiency, we could do all the things we do now with half the energy that we use. That's second thing. Third thing we can do um, is have a, a long-term plan so that uh, fix yourself. Say that in 2050, like Britain and the European Union generally and many other countries, you're going to cut your emissions by 80% and have a proper program going towards that so that it's cost effective have an independent bring back the independent climate change committee to do that work let tim flannery do that work properly and let it work so that the world can see that you are being independent you're following the science and you're doing it in a cost effective way let's bring in joan over in perth joe hello hi john look one of the things that we need to talk about is the fact that actually Australia is not behind the pack if we're looking at other things like the fact that our population growth is faster than all of the other Western nations, that our population density is lower, our transport costs are higher, that our industries are heavily dependent on exporting high emission products 
and you know, our largest export industry is coal. So in terms of what Australia can do, we've already done all of the easy things that are possible. We've put in a great effort so far and uh, people have got to acknowledge our population density, grow, our population growth rate, which is faster than all of the other Western nations virtually that we're discussing. So we also don't have much capacity politically to do nuclear or hydro, which are the renewable forms of energy which actually produce significant amounts of energy. Wind and solar, which, as you say, in Australia, we're well-placed to do them, still only about 1% of our total energy use. It's very small. And there's not much capacity to increase it. We've already done the easy things that are there to be done. So, and in as much as you say China's on board with this, China's going to keep increasing emissions till 2030. And that was when emissions were always going to decline for them when their population peaked. So they're actually really not doing anything. It's all very token. It's the same with India. Let, let's get John's response to that, the, well, the, the notion that Australia well, should all, be that, a special case. Well, first of all, the Chinese argument is nonsense. The fact of the matter is her emissions are great, not because of her population, but because she is in the position of exporting her... All, all the things that we used to make at home are being made by China. So we've exported our emissions to her. Secondly, she's going to peak well before 2030. She's a very sensible, organised political machine, so they don't promise things in advance. You watch what happens at, uh, uh, at uh, uh, the great negotiations in December. She will announce very much earlier peaking. She's going to be able to do that. At the same time, she has the thing that uh, she's, she's got a, a mechanism now, uh, a kind of uh, a cap and trade system, which is in operation in six different areas. It'll be uh, universal nationwide very soon. She's doing extremely well and it's just untrue to say that she's not and it's used as an excuse. Second thing is, climate change isn't going to wait for Australia. The, the climate change is going to happen. Australia either plays her part in it or in fact she's in a worse position. And the countries you're exporting to are going to increasingly say we're not having this. We're not everyone else bearing it. Britain has the fastest growing population in Europe. We have a very significant population increase. But what we have said is, whatever the population is, whatever the problem is, we have got to do our part. And our part is to meet what everyone else is going to have to do as well, which is to cut those emissions by 80%. All right sitting there saying you're a special case, the fact of the matter is climate change doesn't do special cases. Climate change is happening, it's going to hit you hard, and there's no point in saying, well, I'm very sorry, we've got awful difficulties. You have difficulties, everyone else is willing to help, but for goodness sake, you've already done less than other people. I was at Kyoto. The arguments of the Australians in Kyoto were unacceptable. You didn't take on anything like the burden of other advanced countries, so don't pretend you're doing better. You're not, and everyone else outside knows that, and you won't get it right until we're actually honest with ourselves. Britain was way behind on, uh, for example, non-fossil fuels. We had very little uh, renewable energy, but we've worked extremely hard. One percent is a disgrace. Other countries are up. We're already getting into double figures when we started, just like you, in the right. same bad position. John, a quick final question from Ann Davies. Um, John, I don't know if you've had a chance to put these views directly to our Prime Minister. Given his 
political problems, what advice would you give him? Is it possible to do this in two steps, perhaps? Or will the world feel more confident if we have a more developed plan on renewables? I think that the world would be extremely pleased if Australia showed that it was thinking seriously about trying to bring the parties together to find a common view. I think Malcolm Turnbull is a remarkable man. He's respected throughout the world. He's got a wonderful opportunity to do this. He's got real difficulties, of course, within his party. But in order to do this, I think if he showed that the Australian people were willing to try to do something more than they have offered, that they would be prepared to to come back with something uh, more stronger, that they could really try to contribute to, when it comes to the meeting in Paris, I think everybody would find themselves wanting to help him because we don't want Australia to look right outside the, the world community, which it does at the moment. And that was Sir, uh, Sir. That was Lord John Deben, a conservative from the UK, uh, commenting on Australia's woeful climate action record to date.